everyone, and welcome to Two Girls, One Podcast, a show where we talk about fun, odd communities on the internet. I'm Lindsay. I'm Allie. And we're the two girls. <laughs> yeah, we are. We we remain the two the two ladies. Um, I think that today's episode is truly a tale as old as time because it's literally about medieval times. The time is older than medieval times, I would say. No. It depends. It depends how racist you are. <laughs> <laughs> depends when you want to start beginning. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. And I have chosen to be racist today. <laughs> there was Fuck. nothing before. Yeah. The King yeah, Arthur. So yeah. There you go. You know. Um, but yeah, we're talking to someone. Uh, you know, there's a niche for absolutely everything on the internet, as we know. Um, do, do, I am. Am I the only one who thinks maybe we peaked with the Golden Girls fandom? I feel like for me, that's just like let's leave it there. You know what I mean? Let's leave it there. <laughs> right. We're done. Ooh, you know what's great ooh. today? We're that, looking at uh, a whole middle medievalist community. My friend went to the Golden Girls live drag show thing mm -hmm. and said it was fun. So, Allie, maybe we should try to do that. Oh, I've been to see Golden Girls drag and it's incredible and it works so wonderfully and I would absolutely go with you. I love that. I love that. I could um, use um, some joy and I feel like there's nothing more joyous than that. But today, medievalists. I wonder what medieval drag was like. There had to be some, you know? It's like everybody's bored. You just play dress up. It's like, come on, it had to happen. The, no, the men, the men's outfits were drag, right? Or what time period were <laughs> looking at? They had capes. I mean, <laughs> capes and heels. I, I, yeah, yeah. They, wigs. Yes, yes. The question is, when did they start? Women yeah. were not allowed to do things on stage, so men had to play the the female parts, of, at least in Shakespeare's time, which is yeah. later than what we're talking which about here. Later. But I'm sure that goes back further. Uh, wait, before we move on, I have to share a very a very visual thing that no one can see, including oh, you, delightful. but I will oh, send it to you. Great, I we was love this. in uh, Bryant Park in New York City uh, last night, and it's like a lot of shop. It's like artisans and craftspeople. Oh, they and, got their little and, holiday uh, thing. Yeah, I've been their there. little yeah. holiday boutiques. It's, it was mobbed, and but you know we always find good holiday gifts. And there was like it looks like a glass maker. It was like a lot of prints, but remixing culture. And I found like a glass plate or print of the Golden Girls. But they're all cartoon villains from Disney. So <gasps> I think Blan I'm going to send this to you. Blanche is Cruella de Vil. Uh, <laughs> Betty Rose, Betty White is um, Ursula. And I'm not placing the other two right, right away. I don't know how yeah, that you gotta seems wrong. You got to see this. I took a picture for our for our listeners and I was going to send it to Courtney, our, our, our other, you know, our previous guest. Our guest, um, yeah. It was the it's the greatest mashup I've ever seen. It, like I as, see as Rose one image. as more of a queen of hearts, right? She's painting the roses red. It oh, seems obvious. I could see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, I'll put it in the Discord uh, and I'll send it to you. And uh, much discussion will be will drop be made it in the chat right now. I want to see it now. All right, keep yeah, talking. I, I gotta get it. Wait. Yeah. All right, all right. Keep the talking. I gotta get it on the internet. Great. Well, I I, before we look at it, who do you think that the the Disney villains should be, Allie? For each each of them. Before we look, oh geez, oh geez. Mm -hmm. I think well, we already know. Go ahead. I'm I'm just like, who should Betty be? Betty's just too sweet to have her be any villain. I know, right? It's exactly. It doesn't mash yeah. up for me. She okay, could be I'm... the the 
Tiana, that girl that's like antagonizing Tiana, she's not actually a villain. She's just annoying. The rich like friend. Do you yeah, remember in The I Princess mean, and the Frog? She could be that. Be Arthur as the evil um, queen in Snow White makes sense to me. I think oh, that's you true. might have gotten it. Click no, no, the no. Image be that be I... Arthur. Dorothy is the, the Cinderella evil's wicked stepmother. Yeah, okay. Are you looking at it or are you guessing? Yeah, I'm looking at it no, now. No, I was okay. guessing, but now I'm looking at yeah, it. Oh, you're guessing. Look at it now because I, I you need to close. place these characters. That I think you're close. close. No, yeah. The the and and actually Sophia is Snow White's evil That's queen. That's correct. The the evil yes, yeah. the, the evil queen. Sophia yeah, or the, the old Snow woman who gives queen. who poisons yeah. the apple. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And be Arthur. Right, poison this, apple, though. but who's the queen? Is that is that it's the is same, she transforms, it's the same woman. right? Yes. Yeah. Oh, but it, right, 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 so, so, right, yeah. right, 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 yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. You know what? I don't like this. <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> oh, I just sent it to you for Christmas. Oh, oh get, thank sorry. you. No, I'm just kidding. Wait, really? <laughs> no. <laughs> no I, I wish I did. Because then I would like it. I'd be like, all right, that's cool. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> no, I, I think that um, B. Arthur is good as the Cinderella's wicked uh, evil stepmother. And yes. I think that uh, Sophia should be Esme from uh, how the Emperor's New Groove. Uh, well, uh-huh. next game, Golden Girls as medieval characters. <laughs> 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 Bringing it back. Bringing it back. The, I actually what, think that would be Who are the medieval characters? Like Princess Guinevere? The Lady of the Lake? I yeah, can't. I know. There's no, aside yeah. from Arthurian, you know, yeah. canon, whatever. Uh, I, there's no, you know, it's, it's just, there's so much medieval fantasy stuff yeah. but not not specific characters it's, it's also I mean. very male like i don't remember sure, yes. the names morgan fair she also arthurian right the, i don't know i don't remember any of the names of anyone from sir gawain and the green knight none right, of the names yeah, yeah. don't remember but as you as you push forward yeah exactly yeah as you push forward into like tolkien and whatever like i read the hobbit to my daughter when she was very young and we and i love uh, tolkien and lord of the rings like i love that culture and i love high fantasy but i closed the book on the hobbit and we both enjoyed it she was very young she doesn't really remember this and i was like i don't think there was a single female character in this <laughs> entire book no nope. and it struck me suddenly i was like wow yeah. Wild. Yeah, I don't think you get any until the Lord until of the Rings trilogy. Until Two Towers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's one wonderful character, at least in the movies, but but maybe that's it. You know, I mean, there's a couple, but yeah. There, anyway. there. I I can think of two female characters from the Lord of the Rings, <laughs> and that's it. They're elves. Yeah, I mean, yes. female characters is kind of a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> they were not invented. Unfortunately. Yeah. I've been trying to see some classic movies, so I watched L.A. Confidential. And I'm like, you know, oh, this is a good movie. But cool. every single woman is either a secretary or a whore or a whore's mother. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that is it. And also, Russell Crowe's character is absolutely insane. Mm. absolutely insane Un- like to the level of being unsafe i'm like wow <laughs> this is this is who people are lusting after i rewatched it and was like but they're all insane. no thank Everyone's you insane in that it's movie. true it's so yeah. weird it's so it weird. is a good movie but it's like wild to watch these movies that they're not that old they're from the 90s and you're like yeah there's right no, i know they're so problematic already the, it, and it was like trying it was actually trying to be more progressive right it's very weird though 
Yeah. Right. And so speaking of, we're going to look even further back today (laughs) (laughs) and see how it holds up. women. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Does anyone have like a memory of their favorite childhood version of this time period? Like Mm. I personally had a, a book of... Arthurian tales, like a children's book version. And then I also mm. had like a book of dragons, <laughs> yeah. like a, a dragon yeah. book. I'm a, I'm a, I love dragons. I'm a big dragon fan. I was always a fantasy kid. So, and, and, you know, never got into Dungeons and Dragons, but if I had nerdier friends, we certainly would have been playing that. So that's, you know, that's not actual medieval culture, but it is certainly rooted in all of this fairy tale knights and dragons stuff. So yeah. I'm a fan of it, but I'm not a... Uh, I'm not a student of it in any legitimate way. Yeah. Allie? That's a good question. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I the did 90s. have these like, I did have these half magic books that I loved. It was a series and there was like some talisman and I, I feel like they were sent to the middle ages in like one of the books, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like the nineties was a huge time for Robin Hood in general. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. There yeah. was the Kevin Costner one. There was Robin Hood, yeah. Men in Tights. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, I just feel like there was a, a huge, I mean, there Robin was the, had a moment. Yeah. The Richard Gere, um, King Arthur with like Sean Connery and the love triangle thing. Right. Remember Richard Gere was oh, Lancelot. The, yes. Yes. This is Sean yes, Connery was King Arthur. Familiar. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. one of the hot curly haired ladies was maybe Julia Ormond was, uh, Guinevere, but maybe Julia Ormond was Kevin Costner's Guinevere. Ugh, can't remember. Too many hot, curly-haired brown ladies. Brown-haired <laughs> ladies. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was like, and so there was like a lot of you know, Robin Hood love, a lot of like knights and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just like really into it. And yeah. my friend's older sister listened to that song from the Kevin Costner one. The Brian oh, Adams yes, song. The Brian Adams song. Of yeah, course. on repeat for an that entire was summer. Fucking everywhere. It, it was, was uh, intense. It was too much. I was like, too yikes, much. bro. Everything I do. Oh, I do it for you. Allie had to deal with some kind of handy person coming into the house. So we will take this moment to thank our beautiful Patreon. A handy man or woman. Or woman. I don't know. They're a person that's handy. I think it's a handyman, though. Sorry to be sorry to be gender. Have you ever met a female plumber or electrician in your entire life? Um, I haven't met that many plumbers or electricians, to be <laughs> fair. Um, and I, but I, I do know a female contractor. Nice. Um, I, I do know a female contractor. I know several, actually, female contractors. God bless. Them. So carpenters, restorate, like renovator people. Sick. I know a bunch of them. So cool. That's that's my experience. But to be it. very uh, skirting the issue, no, no electricians <laughs> and no plumbers. <laughs> we got to break that electrical ceiling. Yeah, we, yes, and get thank more, you. More more lady electricians in there. <laughs> if you are a lady electrician, please call us. Let us know. Um, but right now, we are going to uh, thank our Patreon subscribers. Oh, they are 
Each one of you is special and important to us. But right now, we are taking a moment to thank those of you who donate at the $10 or more level. Yes, and thank you to Ken M., Wesley Cordell, Bowie Box, Jerry Duran, Jessica Fox, Jessica Kybell, Kathy Phillips, Melissa Elliott, Ryu Manastis, William, and Reft. Thank you all for your kind and generous patronage. We appreciate you, and we hope that you continue to appreciate us. If you would like your name read in a delightfully unhinged way, please do consider donating at patreon.com slash 2G1P at the $10 or more level. Love and kisses to you. This week's guest is living out all of our like fifth to seventh grade dreams. <laughs> they are the host of the Medieval Podcast and the author of several books about the people and times and styles of the medieval time period. Everyone, welcome Danielle Sabalski. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh my gosh. Can I start this off with the dumbest possible question? <laughs> <laughs> That's a big promise. Go for it. Yeah. So I've been to Ren Fair. Duh. And that's not that, that's rude. Is that is that medieval? <laughs> it's Renaissance. It's not a dumb question because it's kind of Renaissance, it's kind of medieval, but then you have people showing up who are like 18th century pirates. So yeah. it's not really, yeah. it's not really It's confined. a choose your own adventure of a exactly. fair, of a, fair okay. a pleasure fair. Yes, for sure. Actually, this is so, such a good start, Allie. It's not dumb because, yeah. Thank you so much. For us, Thank you so much. We, we like fold all of it in. I, I guess a good place to start is how do you for for us lay people who aren't studying this daily what what are the differences between like besides hundreds of years the renaissance <laughs> arthurian times and medieval times and which of those time periods overlapped with each other it's a really good question because this is something that historians are always arguing about as well. When were the Middle Ages? And it's basically, I define it as the thousand year period between about 500 and about 1500. So that time between what people tend to call the fall of the Roman Empire, although that's problematic as well, and the <laughs> Protestant Reformation. So this is the time of Vikings, of Arthurian literature, of jousts, of knights, of castles, and all that stuff. So once you get into Protestantism, when people are splitting off from the Catholic Church, I think that really signals the end of the Middle Ages. But yeah, you find Vikings and knights and all that stuff within this thousand year period. And because it's such a big period, there's a lot that fits into it. But pirates at least ones wearing corsets and stuff are not are not it <laughs> so the renaissance is like decidedly after because it's a the, renaissance the renaissance is even a little tricky as well because the renaissance is said to have started in italy during a time which in northern parts of europe you're still calling it the middle ages and then the renaissance is a really weird descriptor because it means the rebirth. And what they right. mean by that is the rebirth of classical knowledge. But if you actually look at medieval history, that was never gone anyway. 
So the <laughs> Renaissance, it's, it's actually kind of a political thing because once people started to become Protestant in droves, then they started to say, well, if you're not Protestant, that means you're superstitious, which means this entire period, which was all Catholic, was superstitious and stupid as well. So people basically were calling it the Renaissance around that time to show that they were better than the people before them. So it's actually a really good question. When are the Middle Ages? What is the Renaissance? These are, these are good questions. I love that. Okay, Danielle, can we back up to you a little bit? And can you talk us through kind of how you are, how you became interested in the Middle Ages, your academic background, and sort of your areas of study? Sure. I should have a really good and serious answer to this question, but the reason <laughs> why I got interested in the Middle Ages was Disney. <laughs> oh, oh, oh my gosh. Amazing. What? Which, which one? Sword in the Stone? Is that your... I don't like the Sword in the Stone as much, but Sleeping Beauty is probably oh. my favorite. And that's based on the 14th century. And in it, you have Prince Philip saying... Basically, dad, this is the 14th century nowadays, you know, we do these things. <laughs> uh, and that's basically my philosophy about the whole Middle Ages. So, so the Sleeping Beauty and Robin Hood got me into it. And then I started reading things like Tennyson and stuff when I was in high school. And those are those Arthurian stories that everyone really enjoys, you know, like uh, the Lady of Shalott, that kind of stuff. So I was really interested in it, but I had no idea I was going to go into it as a profession until I went to university and I took a class of medieval literature because why not? And I just realized you could make this a career. <laughs> so I kind of switched <laughs> gears and I took a victory lap at university, you know, upgraded my Latin, learned more old English, learned more literature. And then I did a master's degree at the University of Toronto. And even though I chose to do it in English literature, because I thought there would be more jobs, I actually did all of my courses, except for one or two that were in the Department for Medieval Studies. So I took as much history as I did English literature. And uh, yeah, that's how I ended sorry, up doing did, this. Did you just say you can speak Middle English? <laughs> I don't. Well, you can speak it, but it sounds really weird. <laughs> so I, but that's what you're like saying. You know it. how to like you've studied Middle English. I studied Old English and I studied Middle English. And Old English is so different that, you know, okay, I still want to use a dictionary. Can you compliment me in Old English? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Why not? That's so rude. It they sounds didn't weird. have compliments I bet it's back then. Written. That's yeah. the problem. Can you yeah. insult me invented. in Old English? Can you <laughs> <laughs> no, because I don't know Old English as well. The, the the part that I study is much later than that. So as I was saying before, this is a thousand year period and old English <laughs> was being spoken before about the year 1000. And I like to study the 14th century, which is middle English, which just sounds like really funky English. But I, <laughs> if I can find a compliment, I will email it to you in writing because it's much, much easier to do. Number one, did anyone catch how Danielle said that the Disney animated version of Robin Hood has mm -hmm. influenced the trajectory of her whole life. Absolutely. Yes. Excellent, excellent. Because myself, along with apparently thousands and thousands of furries, have been influenced by the <laughs> hotness of that animated Foxy Robin yes, Hood. 100%. <laughs> Kate Sensual. What a sexy fox. That's probably where sexy fox came from, that phrase. Um, I just yeah, like to 100%. point that out. It's not just you. And then what were these middle 
Middle Ages literature that were, was sticking to you? Is I'm trying to guess and tell me if I'm close. Sir Gawain and the Green Knight is Middle Ages, right? Yeah. And, and actually then that, Beowulf? Yes. Okay. So Beowulf is much earlier, and that is in Old English. And if you look at that, like it doesn't even look like actual modern English. It looks totally different. So Gawain and the Green Knight is also very tricky to read, which is why I'm totally, you know, at a loss to think of any line from that poem because I usually read them and I don't read them out loud because it would sound like you're just really wonky. But actually, <laughs> Sir Gawain in the Green Knight was was another pivotal moment for me, not just the fox, but, but, but Sir Gawain. And it's because it's a really complicated poem in that you have, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, which is pretty close to the poem. I mean, where, the movie is so unhinged. I was like, wow, I really didn't read this whole poem. <laughs> There's so much happening. Yeah, there's a lot that's happening. And it, I mean, it's racy and there's lots of difficult choices. But what really got to me was you have this Arthurian ideal of what people are supposed to be like and they're supposed to be chivalrous and they're supposed to just know what to do because they're so good. And Gawain has a really difficult decision to make where he can either keep his promise and lose his life or he can break his promise and save his life and i think that it actually really speaks to the people who were actual knights at the time i mean they're not up against magical creatures but they are having to make really difficult decisions in the moment and they have promises that they've made to the church and promises they've made to their lords and to their tenants and everything and sometimes these promises will come into conflict so when i looked at this and saw this pinnacle of knighthood and the trouble that he had in trying to keep his word to everyone that really caught my interest. And I thought I want to learn more about the society in which this is written because it is a story that's supposed to speak to people who are reading it at the time. And I wanted to learn more about that. Nice. Can you tell us about the five minute medievalist? Sure. So when I got my master's degree, I was, when I finished it, I was pregnant with my first daughter. And then I went from having these really interesting discussions in university to like sitting in a play circle singing Kumbaya, which is just devastating for me mentally because I wanted to have these discussions about medieval history and maybe even Robin Hood the Fox and that kind of stuff. And so I started writing a blog called The Five Minute Medievalist to just share with people the information that they all wanted to know because people have questions about whether people thought the earth was flat, for example. And I wanted to share that stuff. I think that most people don't know where to find that answer. They don't know what the answer is. And so I started to write this as a sort of mental exercise to keep myself from going crazy. The first couple of years of parenthood are very difficult. So that's how I started so this boring. writing. <laughs> I know, I Matt, confirm. You, Matt, you know this very well. I've seen your videos. <laughs> uh, you need to keep yourself busy and mentally occupied. So I started to write those and people started to read it, which was kind of a surprise to me. And then it was picked up by a site called medievalist.net, which is probably the biggest English language site devoted to the Middle Ages. And so they picked up my work and I started to write for them more often. And that's kind of how my career really took off, at least outside of academia. Well, it's kind of a new thing that academics are getting fully involved in social media and sharing their love for their chosen path of academics to mm -hmm. the world in a more accessible and involved way where before it used to be like, oh, well, pedestrians shouldn't even deign to understand what I know. And now it's just like, <laughs> isn't it fun if we all know a little bit about a lot of things? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, universities and colleges are publicly funded because they're supposed to be 
doing this research and this work for the public. And I think mm-hmm. that it really gets lost and has gotten lost over you know, a few hundred years where people think that they are above the public. And often I think there is that sort of snobbery, but it's not always the case with everybody. Some people are just so hyper-focused on their career and what they need to do for their career that they become really insulated and they don't think about the outside world because they're really trying hard to get on the tenure track, you know? So it's not just, (laughs) it's not just about snobbery, but it can become a sort of circle where people are just talking to each other and not talking to the wider public. And also it's publicly available, but you got to go to the campus and to the library and then read a tome to even get, that's not how normal people digest information in, in 2012 or whatever, you know, where, where, wherever we're starting from. So that's a fascinating transition to, to us anyway. Yeah. Yes. So I started writing for the internet probably around 2009, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And this was in the days where my ex had to tell me what a blog was. I didn't know the word. <laughs> uh, if we can remember those days, that was a thing. You had to kind of figure out what a blog was and then how to write it. So it was a bit of the Wild West on the internet at that time. Tell me when you realized that, oh, you know, people like this blog. I like this blog. And they're kind of a, a little... It's, it's a little community that's growing around this. How did that sort of strike you? And and what has been your experience of this medieval love affair? Well, when I first started, I wasn't telling anyone really outside of my circle of family and friends. And so at that point, when you start to tick up into the hundreds of views, that is quite a lot when you're not actually you know, distributing your, your blog anywhere else. And then of course, when I was attached to medievalist.net, they already had a following on Twitter and on Facebook. And so that was a pretty easy place to find the views and find out like how many people are interacting with it. And then, um, the person who runs medievalist.net lived in the next town over. <laughs> so it started with two people, Sandra Alvarez and Peter Kinyechny. And Peter is the one who brought me on board. And he lived in the next town over. So we became close enough that he would tell me how many people were reading it. And that was really interesting too, because once you get those statistics, it's easier to see how many people are reading it and not saying anything because some people are reading it and telling you that you're the dumbest person on earth. <laughs> and other people are just leaving a like. So having those statistics is really really useful. Mm-hmm. So what are the the topics or the sort of queries that most people have about medieval times? Like, are they mostly interested in the food or are they interested in daily life or what kinds of things people are building? Yeah, I think all of these things. I think the more <laughs> mundane, mundane the question, the more people are interested because When people look back to history and a lot of people, including me, including a lot of people who do history as a profession, got into it through historical fiction. So through Disney or through reading Philippa Gregory or something like that. And so when you see that, you want to sort of cast your mind back and see what it would have been like to live at that time. So the questions that people often have are like, what did people eat and what did they believe and how did they date and what did they have on their minds from day to day? And When you peel that back, you get to see just how similar people were back in the day to how they are now. And when you see that, you see how strangely they're painted in modern media. For example, you have people that are, that are saying that, you know, everyone was disgusting and they just like threw their food on the floor and they all just believed in religion with no doubts or anything like that. 
when you actually go back and you look at those sources, you see there's like whole tracts that are written about how to wipe your mouth on your napkins so you don't disgust your eating partner and how <laughs> there are people... There's a, there's actually a really agonized set of poems where there is this man and he's been living a simple life and he wants to believe in an afterlife, but he doesn't. And he knows that his lover has died and he doesn't know where she is. Is she in heaven? Is she in hell? And, and so you can see like people are grappling with the same type of questions that we are today. And that to me is endlessly fascinating. And that seems to be what's interesting to people who read my work or listen to my work as well. Wow. Allie has a dating show and I'm wondering if you could tell us some dating rituals that maybe Ali you could incorporate into the next <laughs> Love Isn't Blind. I'm gonna have them joust to the death. Mm, that seems illegal, but go for it. You'll need a bigger theater, but yes, you should do that. Yeah, tiny, tiny jousting stick. <laughs> well, my new book, my new book is called uh, Chivalry and Courtesy, Medieval Manners for a Modern World. And I do have a chapter that's on like how to woo. And that was the most <laughs> difficult one to write because a lot of the conventions that people had around the Middle Ages and love and all that stuff, we're actively trying to leave behind. So like, Ali, you'll know that like this idea of just overcoming her resistance, like if you just show her how great you are, then she will fall in love with you. Like hmm. this is as old as the Middle Ages and even older. But there are some things that are practical and that you can pick up, things that will be just kind of timeless wisdom. Like if you make sure that your breath smells good, then you have a better chance. <laughs> or like, <laughs> here are some things you can give your, your lover as good gifts. There are things that you can wear on your body. There are things that show your emotion. So we found archaeological evidence of little rings that say like, from my heart to yours, that kind of stuff. So mm. there's some stuff that's timeless, but also some of the cultural stuff is pretty grim and uh, not stuff that you want to take into your dating life today. Mm. Like what? <laughs> well, there is a guy who wrote a book called The Service of Ladies, and his name was Ulrich von Lichtenstein, which if you know A Knight's Tale, you know they've lifted that name from there. But the real Ulrich von Lichtenstein, and we're not sure if he's telling the truth or if he's just writing a book, basically stalks the woman that he's in love with to the point at which he loses a finger and he sends it to her <laughs> as a token mm, of love. Love that. Severed finger. Yeah. So oh, he is that just... why you didn't text me back? No, sorry. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I severed right. my finger for you, darling. <laughs> now you have it in the mail as proof. That's right. Or he he in particular dressed in drag when he did his jousting to show that he was like in the service of love. He had Venus on his helmet and he won these tournaments for her. And she was just not into him. And he was like, this woman is so cold when really... The guy was a psychopath and nobody wanted to date him. So yeah, that's, that's uh, an extreme example. But when it's, when you read it the way it's written, it's supposed to look romantic. And I think if you look back to, you know, even a romantic comedy from 10, 20 years ago, it's the same kind of story, but without the severed finger. <laughs> we yeah, were just talking I mean, about this actually. Lindsay and I were. Yeah. It's, it's upsetting. It's, mm. it's so wild because the thing is, the same kind of behavior in a reciprocated relationship is incredible, right? It's like, mm -hmm. uh, you wake up and they texted you, oh, I'm yeah, so... Yeah, like when we, when, I, when we send our severed fingers to each other. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Allie and I actually have one finger each of each other's. We we severed Aww. our fingers, so mailed them, and sewed on the other person's <laughs> finger. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, so romantic. It's yeah. really cute. Yeah. 
Um, <laughs> but it's just like, you know, if someone wakes up, if you wake up to a text that was like, I thought about you first thing in the morning and you mm-hmm. also thought about them first thing in the morning and you're like, oh, this is so cute. But if it's someone that you are not interested in yeah. and they texted you, I thought about you first thing this morning, you're going to be like, yikes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and And so it's like, I don't know how to explain to you the fact that reciprocation is necessary for these kinds of big feelings. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get that, you're never going to get it. You're a problem. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In the middle ages, people just thought you just needed to get past that because a modest woman is going to resist. So you just need to try harder. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, well, it's super cringe right now to think about that stuff. I mean, I think women were also taught that too, though, right? That they should resist no matter what and he should break down your defenses. It's also probably like a safety thing if you're really thinking about it so that you never have to openly reject someone. You just like casually rebuff every single person until the one you actually like comes for you and then you get married, you know? Yeah. So that everyone can sort of hold out hope that maybe they will actually like me eventually. I mean, it is part of the entire culture. So it's not just men. It is women as well. They are taught that they have to play hard to get. And then the tricky thing that's layered on top of that is that a lot of the courtly love writing, so very stylized writing that was done at higher courts, was meant to emphasize an adulterous love. So the type that you have between Lancelot and Guinevere. And this is because the people who are at the very top are in arranged marriages. People in the peasantry, they could marry whoever they wanted, basically. It was not really super important. But the people at the top had to worry about property transfer and things like that. So, of course, they fantasized about having an adulterous true love. So, in that case, you're still supposed to woo this woman and get past her defenses. But, of course, if she actually allows that or makes it public, then that is a huge deal because adultery was punishable. Yeah, not really off with her head, but she definitely would be shamed. And that's not something that you want. So yeah, it was very tricky. The rules were very tricky back in the day. But of course, humans being humans, they worked around the rules and they had their own affairs and they had their own relationships. It's all very messy when it comes to a human level. Yeah. What has the response been online? What is this? What is this medieval community? It's been very, very good, actually. So over the course of my career, the trouble I got was not from anybody outside of academia. The, the discomfort was from academics. But these days, you have a lot of people who are very receptive. I think this is a real information culture where people want to find out the truth. <laughs> I mean, that leads to all sorts of problems, but people want to find out the truth. So they do a lot of research and they, they want to know how things really were. So I have a lot of people that listen to the podcast from inside academia and outside of academia. In fact, a lot of the people who write in to me and say they love this podcast are long haul truckers. So there you go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Look at and that. Like, great. Yeah. And so now there are more people that are trucking our stuff that know about medieval pigs and mm-hmm. medieval sex mm-hmm. lives and medieval uh, <laughs> food and all of these things, which is awesome. I just think that this period really speaks to a lot of people. Like you were saying, Lindsay, like people want to to play in this world and they think about it when they're kids. And if they forget about it when they're adults, well, here's a way back to it. So the response has been really great. That That's a, my, I have a meta question about that. It's, it's that cultural question of like, 
academically, historically, do we know why the Middle Ages and fairy tales and high fantasy and like Ali said at the beginning, Ren, like this all became conflated as this romantic, fantastical thing that every movie and every video game and every, you know, every book, it's all feels like castles and knights. And I guess I'm just wondering, like, why did we get that and not like ancient Egyptian fairy tales or Chinese? I mean, like we're, you're, we, you know, we, we I know why, Matt, just I mean, think it's about European it for one folklore. second. No, I know yeah. that, but I'm saying like, <laughs> is there, like, I guess what, when I, when I think about history, it's like, well, if this battle was won by this faction, we'd all be Muslim, you know, it, like mm-hmm. the world would yeah. be different. So is there, a, is there a moment in time historically that's like, yep, this is where the fairy tales come from. And now we all love castles. You know, does that make sense? Is that a yeah. weird question? Yeah. And we can basically pinpoint it. And Lindsay's absolutely right. <laughs> so this comes from the Victorians for the most part. Okay. And it does have a really kind of insidious connection to ideas of white supremacy or, mm-hmm. or Western Europe being the height of civilization. But the reason that people want to play in this fantasy has to do with the Industrial Revolution. And even if you read Tolkien right now, so Lord of the Rings, yeah. it had that same flavor. Mm-hmm. And and so the Victorians and Romantics were thinking, like, it's terrible that there's so many factories and it's gross and people are working. If only we could go back to time, we could just ride around in the countryside and everything was clean and lovely. So mm-hmm. the Victorians were super into this idea. And that's why, I mean, Tennyson is one of the, the great writers who's writing about Arthurian literature or writing Arthurian literature, because at this time, people were thinking, those were the good old days where everything right. was just beautiful. And so we we have a legacy of that. And my friend Dan Jones, who's written a lot of best-selling books that people who are interested in the Middle Ages have probably seen or read, uh, he talks about how this seems like a time that is different from us, but not so different that we can't relate to it. So okay, his that theory is yeah. that, yeah, his theory is that they're different, but we can relate to them. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting when you look at the way that people have played with the Middle Ages over time, it's becoming pretty hyper-violent now in mm-hmm. ways that maybe it wasn't even 50 years ago. So mm-hmm. the way that we play with the past and the way we play with fantasies really tells us a lot about ourselves, but that's not going to be a surprise to anyone, <laughs> anyone here or anyone listening. <laughs> that's so interesting. I, I, I kind of always thought of it as being portrayed violently. Yeah. Hey, have we brought up medieval times yet? Ooh, <laughs> we <fun>. haven't. <laughs> yeah, we haven't. I have. I've been to a similar thing, but I've never been to the medieval times. But oh. yeah, um, I don't know what my question is here. It just occurs well, to me that there's this. Okay. Well, at actual medieval times, there are certain things that I want to know if they are historically accurate. Mm-hmm. So oh, here we go. Mm-hmm. So one thing is there's no flatware. Okay, accurate. No. No. <laughs> I was like, this is pretty late to not have flatware, honestly. <laughs> you know? Wait, yeah. it's not accurate? Why do they fucking do it? Because they don't have to clean it then. <laughs> they want it to look like, oh, look how far we've come. Look how backwards uh-huh. they were. This is more <laughs> fun to play in a time when people were backwards. Everybody had a knife and everybody had a spoon. And most people didn't have a fork until the late Middle Ages. This is used for things like actually serving the food, but most people weren't eating with forks during most of the Middle Ages. But everybody had a knife that was just for eating or carving 
and that kind of stuff. And everybody had a spoon. So this is not weird. But if we if we're gonna get into it, if we're gonna get into medieval times, <laughs> yeah. Um they they serve you chicken, which you would be eating. They serve you potatoes, which are from the Americas, so they weren't <laughs> you would there. Not be eating uh-huh. potatoes. Uh-huh. Serve you tomato soup, which is from the Americas. They serve you corn, which is from the, from Americas. the Americas. So almost none of the food that you eat is actually medieval. And that's not like not even to touch the fact that you're drinking like medieval Pepsi and stuff. So <laughs> it is <laughs> it is not it's not accurate, but it's what people want. So I mean, fair enough. Give the people what they want. But Amazing. what is interesting about medieval times is if you if you watch the show they are jousting and of course that's choreographed for the safety of everybody and that's fun but a lot of the games that they do beforehand they often have a falcon that is like going around and getting stuff from the falconer's wrist and that's that's accurate and then they have a few games that the knights play where for example they have to go and get the lance to a ring that's suspended from the ceiling and that's something that knights had to do when they were practicing using their lances so that stuff to me is super fun and that's accurate but the food yeah forget it <laughs> <laughs> amazing well i there's so many things that i want to know but i i kind of want to talk about the books that you've written and if sure. maybe the communities surrounding your podcast and your blog have influenced what you've chosen to write about because you write um, these like fun little guides for can you describe kind of the the guides that i'm talking about and then any other books you want to but I'm specifically thinking of the medievalist guide to blank, blank, blank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've written five books right now. The first one is called The Five Minute Medievalist. And I collected a bunch of the essays that I wrote on the internet. And then I put them together with a couple of more ones. And that was kind of a test to see if people actually wanted to read my stuff. Um, (laughs) And that was successful. So that was good. And then I wrote The Five Minute Medievalist Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse because (laughs) I wanted to... Um, bring people in and show them how the technology people were using makes sense. Because there is this idea that these people were backwards and therefore they were stupid when really they didn't have the same technology that we have. So how do they solve problems? So this is about if, if you're in a post electric world, how would you solve the same problems? So that was my second one. That's a very a short book. Then I wrote uh, Life in Medieval Europe, which I wanted to be a book you could read front to back or a book that you could just dive into when you watch like Game of Thrones or something and you had a question. So that one is laid out in the table of contents is just questions. So what do people eat? How do they date? Like, what do they think about this? And so that is based on the type of questions people had been asking me for years. And the questions that I had when I was working with that material first in university, or the questions that I still have when I'm thinking back to the Middle Ages, then how to live like a monk medieval wisdom for modern life was pitched to me by the publisher. They said, would you like to do this? And I really wanted to because um, it brings together what we know about psychology and wellness. So that's something that I read when I'm off the clock. So I brought these things together. So there are lots of things that monks do, like meditate, like eat healthy, like that kind of stuff. And I brought it together with what we know from scientific research about how this makes you more well. And so that was actually really successful, but on the scale of books being successful. And so we followed that up with chivalry and courtesy, medieval manners for modern life, because people don't believe that, you know, you, you eat politely, for example, (laughs) or they don't know enough about how chivalry worked in terms of 
romance and knighthood and, and how to rule a kingdom and, and what it was like for people who were trying to run a household. That's another chapter in it. So all of the books, they're not necessarily shaped by outside forces, but they're things that I have always wanted to get out there. So it's the type of thing where it sounds really cheesy, but it's like a vocation for me. I can't stop. Like if I took another job <laughs> doing something else, I would still be doing this because I mm -hmm. feel the need to learn and I feel the need to share. And when it comes to people's interests and my own interests, it's those human things because every person's day is made up of you know, 60 minutes in an hour and how many thoughts are you having in that 60 minutes and how many objects are you touching? And all of those things are what made up those people's lives. And so that's really interesting to me and seems to be interesting to other people too. It is such that you had a blog and these books and now two podcasts. So how do I want to know a little bit more about how the communities surrounding your blog and your podcasts interact with each other and how they sort of reinforce each other's desire to know more about the Middle Ages? When I started, it was not necessarily a struggle with the academic community, but it took a little while to figure out where everyone fit in talking about this stuff with the public. So I would write stuff based on research that I did. I would write a five-minute medievalist thing. It's usually about a thousand words, takes you no time to read. Um, and then as I started to do them more often, I would dive more into different research. And what I would do would be to, to go into the libraries that Matt's talking about, pull out information and share that with public. So it's not as if I would take credit for this stuff or say it was my research. I'd be saying, hey, here's this really cool article that tells us about, you know, cups or spoons or something. And I would give people the gist and like pull out stuff that was fun or funny or whatever. And then put that on medievalist.net. And so the academic community felt weird about this at first. It wasn't mostly my articles, but the articles that were appearing elsewhere on that site. Because in academia, you're really valued for your original ideas. And so they get really defensive. And uh, this is not a judgment because this is really what your career is based on, on having these original ideas and not having them stolen. And like I said, I wasn't still stealing anything <laughs> so much as shining a light on these things, pulling them out so that other people could see them. And I would always have a link to the book or the article so people could read more. So this wasn't about me, but at first people were afraid that it was. So that was a little weird. And people were not sure how you could work in public history, history and public medievalism without being attached to a university. And beyond that, if you make yourself unattached to a university, then where is your prestige? Where is that safety net as hmm. well? So again, like none of this is a judgment because everyone who is working in academia has to fight really hard for their jobs. And so I don't, I don't have an issue with any of that stuff, but it could make it very uncomfortable. And there was one person I remember who didn't want to talk to me at a conference because oh. <laughs> they were uh, feeling weird about this. And strangely, so this is about 2009 and even getting close to 2015, people are like not sure. And now it's starting to get really valued and academics are being pushed to reach out to the public. Because the thing is, if the public cannot find an easy answer, they're going to believe the wrong one. They're going to mm. believe the one that some Joe has just written mm -hmm. and it's yep. not true. And it, it makes it so hard for everyone who's working in history to get the right information out. So they started to see the value in opening up the university and the libraries and having people see this. And so 
I started to get people reaching out to me that said that they liked it. And these are often early career academics who are, you know, a bit younger and a bit more open-minded or understanding the internet a bit better. And now a lot of the people that listen to my podcast are established academics or new academics or students, and they are interested in it. And they use my podcast as an opening into learning more about something else, which is exactly what it's intended to do. It's Mm -hmm. never the last word on anything, but it's Mm -hmm. what I think of as a gateway drug. (laughs) So people are using it for that. And so it's been a surprise to me over the last probably five years that academics are are praising my work and they're sharing my work (laughs) in their classrooms or they're sharing it elsewhere. And I think it's really great. And again, like I have no resentment. I think that we are working as a team the people who are in the archives, the people who are out in front of a microphone. And I think if we work together, then we will help more people understand history. And that's really the goal for us all. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that it took academia a while to come to you, but I feel like maybe the entertainment industry came to you earlier and you've done a lot of like work that helps people who are in the entertainment industry trying to make something referencing the medieval times or maybe set in medieval times and uh, like books and movies. And you mentioned a knight's tale, which is notoriously anachronistic <laughs> and delightfully <laughs> inaccurate. But yeah. um, so tell me a little bit about how those, those projects came to you and how this idea to sort of make a guide for people who are trying to make accessible entertainment that involves the medieval ages, the middle ages? Well, I have a feeling that people who are making content are using my work, but they're not telling me about it, which is fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I haven't been a a paid consultant on anything like that, but I did create something called the medieval masterclass for creators. And that was a course that I created during the lockdowns really to, or just before to get people who are writing fiction or working on fiction, graphic novels, whatever, to work with me like more closely so I could answer their questions and really dive into those ordinary details, which I don't have the time and space to do most of the time. So I helped those people and I've had a few of those authors send me their books or graphic novels, which is really great. Um, but I haven't actually worked on any movies that I know of, but again, if they're <laughs> reading my work, if they're reading my work and they're using it, that's great because that is what it's intended for. That said, you know, if, really Scott wants to call me, that'd be great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he has not done that yet. <laughs> well, I have one final question for you, which is, do you think if you had watched The Little Mermaid as your early influence, you would have become a marine biologist? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, <laughs> but probably not. Probably Got not. It. I did great. see it when I was young as well. <laughs> but I mean, maybe Lindsay is right. And it's all about that fox. Foxy fox. <laughs> you know what? We, we didn't... Um, ask this and I think we have to go out on this. It's kind of our brand. What are the most interesting sexual practices of the 1,000 oh, plus so much, year Lindsay. Thank period you so much. Thank you so much. of the Middle <laughs> Ages? <laughs> Lindsay has my back. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, <laughs> there are a lot of things that were considered sinful. And so, of course, people had to write down what was sinful. So, like, there's <laughs> some information about what you're not supposed to do. But probably the most, uh, the most interesting and cool thing that I found was a record of somebody had a red leather dildo that they were using. <gasps> Yeah, which just goes to show that people are the same. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, red leather? 
I don't that's think that's hot. Inside. Red leather, yellow leather. Red, red leather, yellow. What did they use to dye leather red at the time? <laughs> um. Oh gosh, they used for at least cloth. They used uh, crushed up bugs, or they used mm. um, plants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not going in worry, my that is, <laughs> <laughs> That's rinsed out. That's rinsed out before it ever goes mm, there. Great. But I think that. You know, it's not just a piece of like wood that sanded very well. It is actually dyed red, which means people cared about the aesthetics of this dildo. And I think that says a lot about people in general. Wow. Do we know That's who it great. belonged to? I can't remember off the top mm, of my okay. head, but it is it in is the five-minute medievalist. The first. Great. <laughs> I love that. Wow, that's wild. Okay, finally, I know we're we're gonna go soon, but what are what are some of the things that were considered sinful that I should definitely be trying soon? Um, hopefully, you're trying all of them because hey. anything that gives you a lot of pleasure, thank you. Thank you. Sinful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm hoping that you're Everything. having a great and sinful sex life. Uh, <laughs> Do they have like a long detailed list? Like what happened? <laughs> if it's not if it's not missionary for procreation, then right. it is sinful. So uh. everything else you should be enjoying if you want to have a simple sex life. I don't understand why they needed a list for that. If it's just the only one thing that's not sinful, then don't be doing well, nothing else. You have to find out what sort of penance to give somebody. So, oh. you know, you can't say, have you done anything? You have to be like, have you done this? Okay. Have you done this? Have you done this? They were then, bored and nosy. Right? Well, these are the priests who are celibate, right? They're mm-hmm. having a lot of thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yep. Wow. I love it. Amazing. Well, Danielle, thank you so much for coming by and for educating us. I wish you a delightfully sinful life as thank you, you. <laughs> leave us today. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. It's so great to meet you all. What a delight. I mean, truly, I I was one of those kids that had all the, the medieval books and things like that. So to hear someone follow my childhood dream into hmm. a lucrative career as <laughs> a pop uh, academic medievalist is such a delight. I'm upset that I didn't do this sooner, but I need to Google now translate to Middle English. A yeah, modern yeah. English to medieval English translator. Let's see. Um, Does Google do it or do you need a, a fancy website to, to make that happen? Because that'd be fun. Google should have that. Oh, yeah. Lindsay, Google should have a Latin. Dante, young woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Went a <laughs> little <laughs> German. Mm-hmm. I right. put in Lindsay, you're a fine young woman. And it's, oh. it's Lindsay, the art, I'm Dante, young woman. I mean, I don't, you can't, some of the things, some of the letters, they're not letter. I don't know what that letter is. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right. Now they need to spit it out phonetically for this to be useful. But yes, that's, that's a lot mm-hmm. of fun. I am receptive of your compliment. Thank you so very much. Lindsay, in transition, unaccepted about the foxy foxy. (laughs) (laughs) I can only imagine you are making reference to Robin Hood. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 There was this whole class of science communicators that came up through YouTube and now podcasts and and yeah. that and they did exactly what Danielle did but but there's no like uh cultural phrase for you know academic communicate or histor history communicate like we don't talk about them as much as we talk about the science YouTubers and the science podcasts so it was just cool to uh 
to hear about that I journey. see what you mean. There's a lot about like, yeah, science education and science communication. Yeah. But yeah. I think it's also because science like really needs a translator. So it's like science communication, like who is going to translate this? But she that, that was what struck me about what she said of like, I went to the library and pulled out this dusty book. And now when I talk about it, truckers can access it. You know, that that's what science communicators are doing too. There's, it's just different subject matters. Um, and a lot of what Danielle was saying about um, people being prickly in 2009 is, is a mirror image of everything that was happening in media as well, where normal people were like, I love this blog and this is where I get my news. And newspapers <laughs> were like, you're stealing everything. And we were, but also no one was going to read the Washington Post on the internet. So here we're going to translate it for you and tell you what the fuck's going on in the world. Um, that was playing out exactly as Danielle said in in many different areas. So it was fun to hear the academic version of that. You know, it it remind it it took me back to two thousand nine, two thousand twelve. It's a good time to be taken back to. The world it was is. simpler. Yes. It, it, yeah, really two thousand nine like actually probably the peak of life for me at that point <laughs> politically. You know. Mm-hmm. In globally, because I was still blind to a lot and my mm-hmm. immediate surroundings weren't very dangerous. But that is no longer the case. <laughs> it just seemed like the, that people in charge of things were like r- at least respectable and reasonably good and, and not like completely Or at least even unhinged. trying to pretend. You know, Pre- we're not they were even pretending. trying to pretend. They were pretending that the world was at least sane and put together and now yeah. we're just like nah we it, the, the curtains are open we see it we all openly it's all don't care about don't human care. life yeah 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 now we how did we do that we soured Aww, it we ruined it we were Yay. in such a nice little bubble of lightness <laughs> good grief it's been weird anyway. even doing this podcast for this length of time because i feel like we've seen and experienced these changes so viscerally even doing totally. this yeah yeah I agree. um but i Really hope that um, Danielle sends us a voicemail insulting yes. me. <laughs> Give him the I number. That's that what I too. hope. And, and if, if you would like does, to, if you would like to yeah. leave us a voicemail complimenting me, that number is three four seven eight seven one six five four eight. That number again three four seven eight seven one six lit. In any language, <laughs> you can also follow us. I'm at Ali underscore Goldie across social media. I am at the Lindsay Life, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, across social media platforms. And um, please visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash 2G1P. We are an independent show now, and so every amount really, really helps us continue to be able to do this show. Um, you can also pop into our Discord, discord.gg slash 2G1P. You can email us. That's 2G1podcast at gmail.com. I think those are the things. I think those are the ways. Did I miss a way? Mm-hmm. That's it, bro. That's it. All right. Well, we look forward to translating your Middle English letters. Thank you so much. Heart your faces. (laughs) Bye.